In Acts 16, we read about Paul arriving in the city of Philippi. And there's a whole, there's a really long sort of an account of what took place when Paul was in that city. Two main stories, in fact, sort of occurred. And so Luke gives quite a bit of detail as to what took place. And they're really fascinating stories because they give us a really good insight into the sort of person that Paul was, the sort of ministry that he was performing. And as we're going to see in this week's podcast, it gives you a really good sense of the sort of relationship that Paul had with his churches, particularly with the Philippian church. And so this week and next week, we're going to take a sort of a closer look uh, at this uh, this this time when Paul was in Philippi and try to unpack in a bit more depth what it was that happened and and what the significance of that was for Paul uh, in his ministry and in the years after his encounter with so Paul arrived in Philippi probably about the year forty nine A.D. It's all sort of guesswork, but probably around about that point. And it was the first city that he arrived in during his second missionary journey. So he'd already done previously a journey through the area of Galatia. And this next one was much longer. This, in fact, was the first uh, journey that was taken into Europe. Uh, and so these cities that Paul uh, is entering into is really, it, he's going into cities for the very first time preaching Jesus. this is uh, These cities had never heard of the name of Jesus Christ before, and so Paul is really ground doing groundbreaking work in these places. And, of course, with that comes some significant challenges, as we're going to see. So he arrives there probably about 49, and Luke tells us in his account, in Acts 16.11, it says, from Troas, uh, which is Troy uh, in the ancient world, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day uh, we went to, on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. One of the really interesting things about this passage here is that Luke in describing Philippi or in referring to Philippi actually gives a really detailed description of what the city was. So he says here, Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, interestingly, Luke doesn't do that for any other city that he mentions throughout the book of Acts, except for Philippi. So why does he do that? Why is it that he gives the extra information for Philippi and nowhere else? Well, a likely explanation is that Luke came from Philippi. And so this is Luke boasting a little bit. This is him just sort of bragging, hey, you know, that's my city. I'm from Philippi. I'm really proud of that. And let me tell you what's so special about this place. And he says there that it's a Roman colony. Now, what does that mean? What is, what is a Roman colony? Well, when in the Roman world, uh, what, what the Romans typically did when they conquered a, a region or a city is that they just didn't change things too much. Um, the last thing you want to do if you're conquering a place is you don't want to go in there and turn everything on its head. You don't want to go in and make any too many major changes that are really just going to upset the people beyond the fact that you've upset them just by conquering their city. And so the Romans are very happy for to leave things the way they are. Whatever gods the city worships, well, you carry on worshiping those gods. Whatever political structures you currently have, carry those on. So long as they're not, you know, uh, causing problems for the empire, so long as they're not uh, sort of insurrectionists, well, everything is okay. Just carry on as you were before we arrived. Just pay your taxes, keep the peace, and everything is fine. 
But what they would also do is in certain areas, they would establish their own cities. They'd rebuild an old city or they would uh, establish a new city from scratch. And this would be a Roman city. It would be a colony. It was a city that was governed by Roman politics. It was a city that used Roman political structures uh, and really was just a Roman city. So if, you, if you're if you traveling through Macedonia, if you want to get a sense of what life is like in the city of Rome over in Italy, well, you could go to Philippi. You could get a real sense of what things were like to be in Rome. You, you got the same thing in Corinth. Corinth as well was a Roman colony, which just means that it was rebuilt by the Romans to be a representation of the Roman way of life. And so it was a Rome away from Rome. Now, in the case of Philippi, Philippi had become a Roman colony. Now, it's a much older city than it was there before the Romans got there. In fact, it was refounded by King Philip, Alexander's father, and so named after him naturally, Philippi. But over the sort of decades preceding the gospel, the city itself had been the site of a couple of major civil wars. And so after Caesar was assassinated, um, the main civil war between Caesar's assassins and Octavian and Mark Antony uh, took place in Philippi. And then later on, when Mark Antony and Octavian went to war themselves, they also sort of had this war nearby, um, sort of near the, near the area of Philippi. And so the city had been subject to a lot of decay. It had been really destroyed by these wars. And so as a sort of a way of thanking the city, but also maybe apologizing, um, the Romans reestablished Philippi as a new city, rebuilding it um, and reestablishing it as a Roman colony. Now, in addition to uh, just sort of rebuilding the infrastructure uh, of the city, they also um, gave property or gave land in the region to retired veterans, to ex-soldiers who, as a part of their retirement package, were given property. And so Philippi isn't just a Roman colony in the sense that it has Roman culture and sort of Roman politics, but it also has Roman citizens. It also has, uh, it's is actually um, populated by a lot of ex-Roman soldiers. So it's a very uh, important city. It's a very privileged city. Uh, one of the benefits of being a colony is that you're self-governed. Um, you know, you've got a lot more autonomy in the way that you do things. Uh, you're exempt exempt from poll taxes and from land taxes. Uh, if you're a citizen of Philippi, you're automatically granted Roman citizen, citizenship and, and all of the benefits that come along with that. So there's a lot of privilege with being a Philippian citizen. Uh, you're, you sort of, there's an extra sort of imperial favor that comes along with being a citizen of the city of Philippi. And so for someone like Luke, who is a citizen of Philippi, well, presumably, there's a, a sort of a good reason why he's, he's proud of his city. He's proud to boast about the fact or to give the full description of the city of, of, the city of Philippi itself. So when Paul arrives in Macedonia, this is the first city that he naturally goes and visits. And it says in Acts 16, 13, it says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
Now, if you're interested, this week's uh, YouTube video, you'll actually, I'm actually there in Philippi uh, at this particular river that's referred to here. So uh, if you want to get a sense of what it looks like, the city itself, um, yeah, I'd encourage you to jump onto YouTube and uh, have a look at that video. The link for that will be in this week, in the description for this week's podcast. So it says we were, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. Now, if you've read Acts, then you'll know that what Paul does when he gets to a city is the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue uh, and on the Sabbath. Now, there's a simple reason for that, and that's that Paul is a Jew, and in the synagogue you're going to find the Jewish community. And so that's Paul's primary audience. That's the first audience that he's going to preach to because those are the ones who've got the better understanding of Scripture, um, the ones who are probably the closest to uh, an understanding of who Jesus is. And so what Paul is doing is to simply try to establish the gospel message within the city with the people who are the ones who are going to understand it the most easy. And the fact that Paul is a Pharisee also means that he had, it's easier for him to step into a synagogue and preach there. Uh, as a Pharisee, he would he was a recognized figure, he was an authoritative figure, and he was a very well-educated person. So it's very easy for him to go into the, to the uh, synagogue and to be able to have the opportunity to speak on, on a Sabbath day. So this is what he normally does. We see him do that in Thessalonica. We see him later on do that in Corinth. That's just part of Paul's MO. However, when he gets to Philippi, on the Sabbath, he says that he, he says that he, he goes to the river. Why did he go to the river and not to the synagogue? Well, the simplest explanation is that there wasn't a synagogue in the city. Now, in order to have a synagogue, what you need to have is a quorum of 10 Jewish men. So you need to have at least a, a small group of men who can justify building a synagogue. And so you couldn't even find that many Jewish men in the city itself. So it's a very, almost, if there are any Jews, there's only going to be a very few of them and certainly not enough to justify building a synagogue. So in those situations where you don't have a synagogue, you don't have enough people to justify one, you need to create an alternative. So the idea, of course, is that you're the Sabbath is where you go to study scripture. It's where you go to sort of commune with the Jewish community, to the followers of God. Uh, and if you don't have a synagogue, you've got to, if there are any Jews or any other followers of, of God in the town, then you need somewhere to go and meet. And so the second option you have is the river. Why the river? Well, because in the water, you can be ceremonially clean. Uh, you can be cleansed and then you can go ahead and sort of perform the the liturgies of the faith. So Paul assumes naturally that, well, if there's no synagogue, then there's going to be, if there are any people in the city who are my people, we're going to find them down at the river. And so he goes down to the river and sure enough, he finds a prayer meeting, a place of prayer. And he says, it says that he sat down to speak to them and the people that he's speaking to are women. There aren't even any men, it seems, any Jewish men in the city. I mean, this is a really sparse town or city of when it comes to a Jewish population. You couldn't even find a Jewish man. What he finds here are some women who are sitting down to, to pray there. And so, well, that's the community. That's who the people of God are here. Well, those are my people. So Paul, it says, goes and sits down. Well, Paul and Silas go and sit down and they join this prayer meeting with these women. 
So the story goes on in verse 14. It says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, and so we'll just take a few moments to unpack this. First of all, it says that she was she was from the city of Thyatira, and her name was Lydia. Well, Thyatira is in um, modern-day Western Turkey, and so the region, the, the traditional name of the region from where this woman comes is actually Lydia. So Lydia could be her name, as in that's she's Lydia, as in that's her given name, or it could be that she's the Lydian woman. We're not actually entirely sure. So it could, it could go one way or the other. And so the region itself, Thyatira, where she comes from, what it was known for was particularly for its production of purple goods, um, purple dyed goods. Now, the significance of purple cloth. And the the reason why Luke mentions the fact that she deals in purple cloth is because this is really unique material. Purple cloth is incredibly expensive material. And the reason why it's so expensive is because it just costs so much to make. Now, the way that you make the dye to the purple dye to dye the material is that you need to get the shell, the, uh, the mucus out of these little tiny sea snails called whelks. And so you gather these these whelks up and you crush the the snails inside them and out of them oozes this tiny, tiny little bit of really richly coloured purple mucus. Now, to get a sense of um, the cost, it takes 10,000 of these shells to make one gram of dye. So a single gram from 10,000 shells. So you can imagine how much is required just to make a piece of purple cloth, how many shells are required to go into that, and so therefore the cost that is uh, involved in making this material. So it's extraordinarily expensive, which is why purple cloth or purple is really the color of royalty because literally only royalty could ever hope to afford anything in purple. So she's dealing in really expensive stuff. You know, I always use the example that it's like you can sell cars and you can sell just any sort of normal cars and that's okay. Or you can sell Ferraris, right? You're not going to sell many Ferraris, but when you sell one, you're going to make a lot of money out of that. And so that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with here. But then it goes on and it says that she was a worshiper of God. Notice it doesn't say that she was a Jewish woman. She was a worshiper of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that she was a convert to to Judaism. She wasn't Jewish. This is a Gentile woman who's converted to Judaism. So this is really significant. We're not even talking about a Jewish woman. We're talking about a Gentile woman. And when you consider who Paul is and Paul's background, Paul, in his in his wildest dreams, would never remotely associate with a Gentile person, much less a Gentile woman. And yet here we find him down by this river in this prayer meeting with these women, chief of whom is a Gentile woman. So this is just this remarkable when you consider where Paul's come from to where he is now and the change in thinking that he's had towards other people and especially clearly towards Gentile women. So the story continues. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, 
come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is a, a really, again, a remarkable twist on this story and really an insight into just how much Paul's whole worldview has been changed as a result of becoming a Christian. So it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So she was saved. She received the message and um, converted to become a follower of Christ. And it says, she and the members of her household were baptized. Now, notice it doesn't mention a husband here. Now, maybe there was one um, somewhere in the background and she was clearly the, the more wealthy and more prominent um, part of the, the marriage. And that was the case in, in some ancient marriages. You, you know, the, the, the husband is always the head of the wife and the head of the family. But there are some situations where uh, the wife is independently wealthy and she's, she's got, in fact, more wealth than the husband has. And so she kind of acts of her own volition. She kind of sets her own agenda, sort of does her own thing. And so that does happen sometimes. But I think it's probably a safer assumption to say here that she's not married. Now, again, wives in the ancient world, um, they need to get married because they've come from poverty and they don't have any other means of support for themselves. And so they're going to be reliant on a husband to provide for their basic needs, which, uh, again, if you're wealthy, you don't need that. But in most cases, that's just how the situation is for women. So again, I, I think the safest assumption here is that this is an independently wealthy woman who isn't married, um, doesn't need to be married, and so has that autonomy um, to do as she pleases. So she says to Paul and Silas, you know, if you consider me a believer, then come over and, uh, and stay at my house. Again, just absolutely remarkable. Here's Paul and Silas going and staying in this house of this presumably single woman. Now, it says that there's a household there. Well, that's probably referring to some slaves and um, to maybe some other dependents. Uh, But otherwise, here's Paul and Silas going in and staying in the house of this woman, this, this single unmarried woman. I mean, the cultural um, taboo around that in and of itself was pretty stark. But for Paul, a former Pharisee who wouldn't even be seen in the company of a Gentile woman, much less go and stay with one. This is, again, it's such a remarkable turn of events for who Paul was. But even, I guess, maybe more significant for our story is when she invites Paul into her house, what she's actually offering Paul is to become his patron. She's saying to Paul, you come and stay with me and I'll look after you. I'll provide for your needs. I'll provide the support that's required of you for you as you are doing your ministry work here in Philippi. I'll give you a house. I'll give you accommodation, food, whatever it is that you require to do your work. I'm going to provide that for you. But even more than that, we know that a church is now established in Philippi as a result of Paul being there. Well, the only safe assumption is that she's become the first pastor of this church. She was the first convert, and it's in her house that the the church begins. And so it's only logical to say that after Paul left, she carried on as the pastor of this church. And so all of this, again, I keep saying this, but it's just so remarkable when we consider where Paul's come from 
uh, to where he finds himself now as, you know, planting a church in the house of a single Gentile woman who is his first convert in Philippi and his patroness. And, and it's, it's really, a, it's an extraordinary story. It really is quite mind-blowing to consider uh, what's actually happening here. Now, the story in Acts 16 continues. There are other events that take place, and we'll look at those actually in next week's podcast. But I want to pick up where this relationship with Lydia continues on and where the relationship of Paul and the Philippians continues later on in the New Testament. So we fast forward our story six years and we find ourselves in the year 55 AD. Now, Paul had completed his second missionary journey. He's then completed a third missionary journey. And now we find he's come to the end of that uh, particular journey. Now, what's actually been happening behind the scenes of all of these missionary journeys is that Paul's been taking up an offering for Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem has been going through some difficult persecution. They've been going through, through some struggles. And so what Paul's been trying to do is to rally the Gentile churches to bring an offering for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, so there's sort of two uh, parts to this offering. The first part is to provide practical support for that uh, for that community in Jerusalem, but also to try to build something of a bridge between the Jewish and the Gentile churches. So what we find is that uh, the Christians in Jerusalem are a little bit more hesitant in bringing Gentiles into the fold because, or for all of the reasons that we find through Romans and Galatians, there's a real struggle with how do you integrate Gentiles now into what was always been an exclusively ethnically Jewish faith. So what Paul's trying to do is to show these uh, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that hey these Gentiles that we're all on the same we're all on the same team here we're all part of the same group. So he's been doing this kind of behind the scenes and we find him now it's the end of the third journey and he's writing to the Corinthians. He's actually back in Philippi now, and he's writing to the Corinthians. Now, there's been some trouble in uh, between in their relationship with the Corinthian church, and we'll cover this uh, in a future podcast, but there's been a breakdown in the relationship between the Corinthians and, and Paul. And so what Paul's had to do in the months leading up to this letter is try to reconcile that relationship. And and what the relationship had really broken down over was this particular offering. There'd been some some speculations, some suggestions that maybe Paul was embezzling the money, that actually it wasn't going to go to Jerusalem. It's all actually going to go to Paul's retirement fund or something. And so they've had their doubts about Paul. They've actually, you know, really actually ultimately rejected Paul and refused to participate in the offering. So what Paul's had to do is to sort of convince them, say, hey, guys, look, no, this is legit. I'm giving this money to Jerusalem. Um, you know, don't listen to what these these haters are saying about me. Um, this, this is a legitimate thing. So he's been able to convince them of that and get the uh, offering started again in, in Corinth. And so now he's on his way back to Jerusalem to bring the offering, and he's going to go through Corinth to collect from them their particular offering. So in anticipation of his arrival, he writes 2 Corinthians just to get them ready, just to say, hey, guys, look, I'm coming down there soon. Um, I'm going to be bringing some Philippians with me. Uh, so let's not, you know, look a bit silly. And if I don't want to turn up and you guys not be ready, let's get this thing going so that when I come, it's, it's nice and straightforward. And then I can be on my way down to Jerusalem with this gift that I'm bringing from you guys. So that's the context of 2 Corinthians, and especially with what he says here about 
the Macedonians or specifically pro- about the Philippians themselves. So Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 8.1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, we know from the account in Acts, as well as later on from 1 Thessalonians, that the churches in Macedonia were going through some serious persecution. Uh, they were going through some real challenges uh, because of their faith. And so, in, in a way, they can really empathize with the church in Jerusalem, with the Christians down there, who are going through the same challenges brought about by the same groups of people. And so there's already this empathy that's taking place. And as Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying to those to a church who doesn't really have the same struggle. He's saying to these guys, you know, these people that I'm with here, these Philippians that I'm with, they're going through a really tough time of it. And yet look at what they've done. God has looked after them. God has carried them through these challenges. And in that grace that God's given them, it's actually stirred up in them a real spirit of generosity to want to help others. They've seen what God can do, has done for them, and they want God to be able to do the same thing for those going through the same circumstances. So he's writing to a Corinthian church who, again, aren't really facing these sorts of troubles. And he's saying to them, look at what these people who've got nothing are willing to do. Now, you Corinthians who aren't facing these struggles and actually are quite a prosperous church, what can you do? If these people who've got nothing are doing something, you that have got something, what can you guys do? Like, surely you can go above and beyond what the people who've got absolutely nothing over here have been able to to achieve and to do. So it's, it's sort of setting a challenge. It's setting a benchmark or really an exemplar to the Corinthians. Look at what these Macedonians are doing. Can you outdo them? Can you beat them? That's the challenge that I'm, I'm sort of laying out here for you guys. So he goes on to explain to the Corinthians then what exactly the Philippians have done or these Macedonians have done uh, in regard to the giving. So he says in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So there's a, there's, this is a really loaded passage and there's a few terms here that I want to sort of draw out and unpack a little bit more. He says to them, as I can testify, and the Greek word here is, the, is martyreo, it's a martyr or, or witness. He says, I'm giving you a, a legally binding uh, assurance that what I'm saying here is true. This isn't just uh, me just sort of talking out of the side of my face. This is, you could, this is backed up. This is, I, I testify to this. I will, I will stand before a judge or, uh, and testify that this is absolutely true what these guys have done. He says they gave according to their means, kata dunamin in the Greek. Now, you might have heard at some stage or another this word dunamis. Uh, think about where we get a word dynamite from. And so you might hear it talked about as being the power of God, this dunamis power, this explosive um, bang kind of power of God. And in a sense, there's, there's, that's true. It's used in that context. But the word is much more generic. The word um, power, it, it really, it's better understood as your means, your, your ability. 
And so when we talk about the dunamis of God, we're only we're just talking about his ability, and God is powerful, and so naturally that has that sense of that sort of dynamite sort of power. But what Paul's saying here is that they gave according to their own power, which wasn't much. <laughs> the, the, the Macedonians don't have a lot. The Philippians don't have a lot going for them. They, don't, they really don't have two cents to rub together. And so when he says they're giving according to their means, they're really giving, he says, just according to the very little that they have, but giving in accordance with what they actually do have. They're not giving money that they don't have and they're not giving below their measure. They're giving according to their ability. But then he says, but they actually gave even stretched beyond their means. They gave even a little bit more. Now, this can be misunderstood. This uh, this expression they gave beyond their means can be maybe twisted or manipulated to say that I'll give what you can afford and then in faith give even more than you can afford. It's uh, I, I don't want to disparage that, but I think we need to be cautious about the way that we uh, teach that because what Paul's saying here is that they gave beyond their means, but he doesn't give a measure. He doesn't say that they expended themselves to the point where they were bankrupt. Now, he might be saying they gave one cent beyond what they can, what they could afford. Now, one cent isn't much, and so it's you just gotta be careful when we we sort of uh, apply this to great measures or to um, you know extravagant amounts of of giving when it's not really what Paul has in mind here. So when. He says they gave according to their means. They gave according to their financial ability, according to their wealth. But he says even more amazingly that they gave voluntarily. They did it by their own means. They weren't twisted into this. It wasn't like I came along and, you know, manipulated them and made all these false promises. No, they wanted to do this. In fact, it actually goes, he goes as far as to say they begged us for the favor of doing this. Now, in this culture, in this ancient world, when you give somebody, when you do somebody a favor, the word there is the word charis. It's the same word as the word grace. Now, what will typically happen is that a, a person who is impoverished will go to a wealthier person in the city and they'll say, can you help me out? You know, can you, can you give me a favor? Can you give me a grace? And the reason why you go and ask a rich person is because you don't have any social services in the ancient world. There's no government support when you fall on hard times. If you fall on hard times, you're done. You're as good as done. There's there's no one coming to your to your rescue, and so you you approach somebody in the society, somebody who's wealthy, and say, "Can you help me out? Can you give me the resources to get through this time?" Now, what that brings you into is a relationship, a patron-client relationship. The patron will say, okay, well, I'll, I'll happily give you the resources that you need. And I, I, don't, I can't, I'll never expect you to pay me back because you can't. If you could pay me back, you wouldn't be here asking me in the first place. What you can do instead is that you can sing my praises. You can tell everybody how generous I am, how good a patron, how good a person I am in the way that, I, that, in the way that I've helped you. And so the, the point here, the, the term here is this word carries. The gift that the patron gives to now the client is a gift and therefore the praise or the, um, the honour that you give back to the patron is also a caries. it's also a gift. And so when we think about giving, 
You know, we can very easily think, well, I'm giving, so, you know, you're welcome. How, look how generous I am. I'm, I'm contributing towards this thing that the church is doing or whatever it might be. Look how generous I am. You know, I'm, I'm such a good person. These Philippians are going, hey, Paul, can you do us a favor? Can, can you help us out? And Paul says, sure. Okay. What would you like me to do? He says, they say, would you let us be part of this offering? Would you give us the privilege of giving towards this offering? I mean, it's just totally backwards. It's totally upside down in the way that their understanding of how to participate in this particular offering. Nevertheless, Paul says, "Sure, okay, absolutely. Let's 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 do this thing." But again, tr- again, trying to inspire these Corinthians that you know, you got you Corinthians have sort of argued with me about this, you've questioned me, you've actually even accused me of embezzlement, whereas these Philippians are going, Paul, can you do us a favor and let us be part of this thing? So Corinthians, what I'm hoping for is perhaps you might have the same sort of attitude as what these Philippians do, or at the very least, don't be so begrudging about it. See this as an opportunity to do the will of God and to participate in a really generous act of kindness to these Christians in Jerusalem who are going through a hard time. Now, there's one more encounter that occurs in this ongoing relationship, which takes place in 60 AD. Um, This is when Paul's in prison. Now, just to set some context to this, something that Luke doesn't talk about in Acts 16 is a relationship or or at least a, a partnership which seems to have emerged as a result of Paul's time in Philippi. So Paul was in Philippi, he was staying with Lydia, and from that point, a a church emerged. Now, Paul wasn't there for a very long time, but something, there seems to have been a relationship or or a partnership that seems to have been struck up uh, during Paul's time there. Now, for those of you who have been around the church for a while, you'd be familiar with the word koinonia. It's a Greek word that we translate as the word fellowship. At least that's generally how it gets, turns up in your uh, in your English Bibles, and so it's a really important word. It's, it obviously re- signifies the um, the relationship that we have with one another as Christians. But the word itself, the word koinonia, actually had a more practical sense in that ancient world. The word referred to a partnership. And so what would happen would be that when two people entered into a business partnership, what they would enter into is a koinonia. And so there would be contracts that would be signed. There would be uh, obligations um, sort of set out. So, you know, in this partnership, I will contribute X and you will contribute Y. And that will be the basis upon which this business partnership functions. So really, it's no different to business partnerships today. You know, you become equal contributors to the business and that's the obligation that you make. So these these go all the way back into the ancient world. Well, the word itself, koinonia, turns up in the relationship that Paul has with the, with the Philippian church. And so what's been um, sort of demonstrated is that what Paul would have had with this church was quite a unique partnership, a business relationship. Now, the terms of the relationship would have looked something like the Philippians saying to Paul, we'll support your ministry, we'll provide financial resources for you, and in return, what you can do is preach the gospel. We can't do what you do. You're 
uh, you're called to go around to all of the world and preach the gospel. We can't do that, but we can help you in that process. We can help you in that uh, in that ministry. So in modern terms, it's much like when you support a missionary overseas. You will provide the resources, the money that's required for you to go and preach full-time in wherever it is that you're going to preach. Now, so for Paul, this is what enabled him to do the work that he was doing. In small part, he would have had resources from elsewhere, but this would have in small part helped him to do that. In fact, we actually see this play out in Acts 18. So two chapters after Paul was in Philippi, he's in Corinth, and it says there that when Timothy and Silas arrived, Paul devoted himself to full-time preaching. Now, Timothy and Silas arrived from Macedonia. They had been with Paul during this time. And so it says when they arrived, Paul could devote himself to full-time preaching rather than doing the tent making that he had been doing. So what changed? Well, coming from Macedonia, Timothy and Silas would have brought maybe the first installment of this offering that the Philippians have taken up, although the Macedonians have taken up. And so Paul now could, doesn't need to work anymore. He can actually devote himself to full-time preaching. So already in the early stages of this relationship, 10 years prior to Paul being in prison, we can already see this relationship working out. But what seems to have happened, Paul seems to allude to the fact that this has been an ongoing thing time and time again. The Macedonians have come through for Paul and continually supported him in this ministry, in this partnership that they've entered into. Well, that goes all the way through into when Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. So, you know, the whole story, Paul gets arrested and he gets taken to Rome and there's sort of long ongoing trials. So Paul's now in in Rome in prison, and the Philippians get word that this is what's happened to Paul, that he's in prison. And so they're they're naturally concerned. You know, this is their primary missionary. This is a guy that they've been supporting for a long time now. So there's a real, really close relationship that they have. And so naturally, you're um, you're going to be worried when you hear that Paul's been arrested. Now, we're going to see this in more detail next week, the the context of ancient prison. But one of the primary things about ancient prison is that when you're arrested and imprisoned, it's up to you to support your own needs. It wasn't like there was a a public jail system that uh, housed you and fed you and took care of you. Uh, No, you had to find, you had to look after your own um, your own situation. You had to f- provide your own needs. Now, obviously, you can't do that when you're in prison. You can't work. And so you have to be reliant on somebody else outside in order to provide your basic needs. So if you don't have that person, well, too bad. You're a dead man walking. That's, that's how you're going to die. So for Paul, he's now in prison. He needs support. Now, he's got other people, of course, that are there helping him in Rome. Um, but for the Philippians, this is what they've pledged to do, to look after Paul in these circumstances. Now, what's even more remarkable about this is that when somebody is imprisoned, you don't really want to be associated with them. There's a real shame in being associated with an imprisoned person. And so for to even be connected with that person, well, you kind of want to back off from them. You, you sort of don't want people to know that, you know, you're friends with a jailbird. Nevertheless, the Philippians, well, that doesn't bother them. They continue 
in their obligation. They continue in this relationship. And so they've heard that Paul's imprisoned in Rome. And so they, they get together a gift. They get together some support and they send it along with a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, we don't know anything else about this guy apart from the mention that we see of him in the letter to the Philippians, but he comes along and he brings this offering. Well, we don't know the exact details, but it seems that sometime during his stay with Paul, uh, Epaphroditus becomes very ill. Um, He falls ill um, and he's there with Paul, which means that he can't go back. He's not able to get back to Philippi. Uh, and so they're going to start to get worried. There's, they, it's not like Paul could phone them and say, hey, look, yeah, Epaphroditus is here. He's really sick. He's going to be late. They don't know what's going on. So then in their concern, um, the, well, the, eventually sort of the news gets back to uh, to the Philippians to say, hey, you know, probably Paul, Paul probably sent somebody back um, just to, you know, keep them updated with what's going on. And so now the Philippians are really worried. Now, thinking, keeping in mind that there's, you know, a good few weeks of travel between cities. And so they've sent Epaphroditus off. It's going to be a few weeks before he gets to Rome. He's going to be there for a few weeks. And then it's going to be another few weeks before somebody gets sent back to Philippi. And so they've it's a couple of weeks to get there. So maybe a couple of months has gone by. And then they get word, oh, my goodness, you know, Epaphroditus is sick. What's his, Is he dead? Is he, is he alive? We, we don't even know. So they're naturally very concerned about this. And a, a few months has gone by, so they just you do, anything could have happened in that time. And so they send back to Paul to say, hey, you know, what's going on with Epaphroditus? You know, how is, how is he? What's going on? And so that's when Paul writes this letter to back to them, this Philippian letter, to assure them, amongst other things, that Epaphroditus is okay, that he's there, that he's um, that, that all is going well. So that's a bit of the context for why we have this letter to the Philippians. But what Paul sort of does, you know, in dealing with some of the issues, he sort of you know, writes back and he's sort of encouraging them and, and dealing with a couple of little issues there. But he saves right to the very end this passage here about the offering that they've brought. So he says in Philippians 4.10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength." Now, a question you might ask is, why does Paul leave this to the end? The, the Philippians have sent this very generous gift, and so Paul um, is somewhat obligated to at least acknowledge the gift and, and to be grateful for it. Why does he leave it to the end? Well, the simplest solution would be that Paul is wanting this to be the last thing they hear. This letter would have been read out to the, to the church, and so the very last thing that he wants to talk about, the, the main point that he wants ringing in their ears when they leave the room, is his gratitude for the offering. But then on the other hand, you think, well, he doesn't sound very grateful for this. He says, I rejoice greatly, not because you've given me this wonderful gift and now I can carry on and continue because of your generosity. No, he says, I'm, I'm grateful that you, rem- you remembered to be concerned for me. You renewed your concern for me. It's almost like, thank you for remembering me. Well, yeah, but we did more than that. We didn't just remember you. We did something about it. We actually gave you this gift. 
And then Paul's sort of like, well, yeah, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm grateful that you renewed your concern for me, but really I've learned how to be content without it. It's, it's almost like he's saying, I didn't really need it in the first place, but thanks for sending it anyway. I mean, it really sounds ungrateful. But what Paul is really doing here is to try, he doesn't want this relationship to sort of dissolve into a quid pro quo relationship. He doesn't want a situation where the Philippians have said, well, hey, Paul, we've sent you this gift. What do we get in return? Now, they wouldn't have done that, but just as a way of maintaining the, the sort of the status of the relationship, this is a way of reminding them all to say, look, whatever you did, you did for God. I benefited from what you did, but you didn't really do it for me, or at least primarily it wasn't for me. It was your service to God. And so through that service, I was blessed. Now that same God who blessed me through this offering is also, is also able to help me when I've got nothing. Um, and, but through you, he was able to, to be able to, he was able to bless me. And so there's this sort of sense in which Paul's trying to bring the, uh, the terms of the offering back to the gospel, not just something between this quid pro quo between him and the church, but centering it back into what it was really about, which is the preaching of the gospel. So he goes on in verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. So the thing that makes Paul most grateful is not really so much the gift, but what the gift represents. For Paul, it's a reminder of this ongoing relationship that he's had with this church from, from over the last 10 years. It's this gratefulness that they've been able to maintain this, this faithfulness to the relationship, um, this, this longstanding relationship that they've had. And so again, it's not about the money. It's not about the, oh, thank you for the gift and I owe you one. It's, no, it's what does this gift represent? It's this longstanding commitment that you've had to the gospel that you've you're serving of God continually by sending me this gift. It's not about me. It's about what you're doing for God. It just manifests manifests itself in this um, continuing support that you send along to me, which continues even now while I'm in prison. At a point where most people would abandon me, you guys have continued to send aid because you realize too that it's not just about me. It's about the gospel and what God is doing through me. And so what Paul says is, in response, in return, what I want from you guys is the full blessing that's going to come as a result of giving me this gift in the first place. It's not, I'm not going to be able to reciprocate this. I'm not going to be able to pay you back. What I really want is the fact that God is going to give give back to you much more uh, as a result of your serving him first and foremost, which is actually what he goes on to say in the next verse. He says in verse 18, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So again, it's this reminder of you did it for God. It was an offering first and foremost to him. 
uh, it's, it sort of reminds us of the verse where Jesus says, if you even give a cup of water to one of the, the least of my people, you've done it for God. It's not about the gift to the person. It's not even about what the gift does for the person, but it's what it represents. It's a service to God. It's I'm doing this because of God. And so Paul's bringing their offering back into this context. Not that they necessarily needed the reminder, maybe they did, who knows. But the broader point that you guys, as generous as you are, you did this first and foremost because of your commitment to God. And so I think it's it's an interesting point of reflection perhaps on what is what does this mean for us you know in the sense of what we give and when we um, you know donate to our church or even to charities or or anything like this is it um, just about the gift is it giving with an expectation of reciprocation uh, well I've given something to you so you owe me something no in fact not at all what Paul's talking about here is this well you're giving and it manifests itself in a gift to a person or to an organization but the bigger point of it is that it's actually a service to god it's what you're doing as a part of your worship to him and so if you're looking for a return on that it's not going to come from necessarily what you gave it to but it's from the god for whom you were doing it in the first place and so that's something of paul's early encounter with the, uh, with the Philippian church and, and the ongoing relationship that began really at a prayer meeting in a river, at a river uh, just outside the city of Philippi, that chance encounter that Paul had with Lydia, what evolved out of it into this ongoing 10-year relationship and this very loving, very um, just very faithful relationship that sort of emerged out of that as a result of that incredible encounter. Well, next week, we're going to look at something else that happened in Philippi, which is Paul's arrest. But for now, I hope that's been helpful. uh, And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. All the best. All the best.